to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6. Our text this morning is Hebrews chapter 6, verses 16 to 20. It's one of the most comforting texts in the whole of the New Testament. But for context's sake, we're going to go back and begin reading at verse 13 and read through the end of the chapter. The Word of God says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear... He swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we'll stop there, and uh, we're going to look at some things in verse 16 through verse 20 for a little while this morning. And then this is Communion Sunday, and we will be taking communion. And remember, we practice open communion. Uh, If you're a believer, the Bible says to examine yourself, and you're welcome to take communion with us this morning. Well, this morning we come to the last section of verses in this parenthetical passage that we've been looking at over the course of the last few weeks. Remember the great theme, I think the primary theme this so far that we've discovered in our study of the book of Hebrews is the superiority and the supremacy of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is superior in every way to everything. And remember This book is called Hebrews. It was written to early Hebrew believers who were wrestling with the experience of persecution and the pressure that was being applied to them to try to get them to go away from Christ, walk away from Christ, renounce their faith in Christ, and go back into the fold of Judaism. And great pressure was being applied to them. They were suffering. They were experiencing persecution They were probably being ostracized. They were probably facing financial difficulty because they would have been excluded in large measure from their Jewish communities for the simple fact of having come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the writer is laboring throughout the letter to prove that all of the Old Testament ceremonies and all of the Old Testament rituals were types and shadows of a superior reality. And that superior reality is the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we're in a part of the letter where the writer is focusing on the priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
and he has made the point that Christ is the fulfillment of the type of the Old Testament priesthood, began first of all with Aaron, and then continued with all of Aaron's descendants. But we're at that point of the letter where he says that Christ is even a greater priest than even the Aaronic priesthood. He is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. In our in the chapter that comes, the writer begins to deal with this subject of how that Melchizedek in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis is a type of our Lord Jesus Christ and a type of his greater priesthood, his superior priesthood, even to the priesthood of Aaron. But what we've been studying is basically a parenthesis. There's a parenthesis from chapter 5, verse 11 to the end of chapter 6. And that parenthesis basically takes up part of the second great theme that we've discovered in the book of Hebrews, and that is the necessity of perseverance, the necessity of continuing in the faith, even though persecution may come, even though pressure may be applied, it is necessary that those who believe continue to believe, that they remain firm in the faith unto the end. And this second or this parenthetical passage has basically been dealing in some measure with this second theme, the need of perseverance, the need to continue in the faith. Now in this section, we have, yeah, we're at the last section of this section, but in this section we have been warned of the danger of apostasy. From chapter 5 verse 11 down through chapter 6 verse 8, you have one of the most serious, most sober, and most solemn warnings in the Old Testament. You know, I said when we looked at those verses, it is also one of the most misunderstood, one of the most debated, and one of the most disagreed upon texts in the Bible. But I think that if we look at it in its context and we hear what God is saying to us, we'll discover that these verses is one of the most solemn warnings in the Word of God about the subject of apostasy. So we've been warned in these verses about the danger of apostasy and turning away from Christ. But also we've been exhorted to continue to press onward. And we need that, right? We need, you listen, in a world that is always against us where we're always swimming upstream, in a world where we are promised persecution, in a world where we have to face the problem of our own flesh and we have to face the problem of the world system that is anti-God and anti-Christ and when we have to face the reality of a devil that hates the church and wants to destroy it, in a world like that we have to understand that we need the exhortation, number one, it is, there is a danger that you have to be careful that you don't turn away from Christ. Number two, you need to continue pressing on. You need to continue going forward. And now we come to the last section this morning of this parenthetical passage. And in this section, we have some of the most comforting and assuring verses in all of the book of Hebrews about the infallible work of God in preserving his saints. Now, we need to think just a little bit about this because we need to remember always that the warnings of the Bible are absolutely necessary and absolutely true. 
But we also need to understand that the promises of the Bible are absolutely true and absolutely necessary as well. And what we have here in this parenthetical passage is a solemn, sober, serious, and real warning, an exhortation to keep going forward, to keep looking to Christ, and to keep following Christ, and to keep trusting Christ. But then we have also these comforting promises of how that we can be sure that he who began a good work in us will by his grace and by his mighty power bring it to completion. Now in these verses this morning, there are three things I want us to think about and then we're going to take communion. The first thing we're going to think about is our preservation. The second thing we're going to think about is our assurance. And the third thing that we're going to think about is our hope. Now first of all, let's think about our preservation. Now as we think about our preservation, I like that term. I like that term because... Both terms are necessary. We must persevere, but God also preserves us, right? Both of those are truths that are communicated in the Word of God. The saints must persevere, but when we all get to heaven as we sing the song and we look back, we're going to say, we persevered because God preserved us, right? Because God kept us. We don't keep ourselves. God keeps us. God is the one who preserves us. We are preserved not because of our strength. We are preserved not because of our wisdom. We're we're preserved not because of our willpower. We are preserved not because of our ability. We are preserved by the keeping power and the amazing grace and kindness of God. But we must remember and we must keep it in its proper balance. We are not preserved apart from perseverance, correct? Correct. Those who are preserved persevere. Those who are kept by God will in the end prove that they have remained in the faith and been obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's think just briefly about the subject of preservation. Now in these verses, we could ask the question, who is the people, who are the people that are being preserved and kept? And there are two things in this text that kind of designate who these people are. First of all, in verse 17, they're called the heirs of the promise. The heirs of the promise. Look at verse 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the, unta- the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Whoever these people are, here they're designated the heirs of the promise. Now who's that got to be talking about? Well, it's got to be talking about those who are the inheritors of the promise of God. And by the way, all of you who have children, who will your heirs be? They'll be your children, right? They'll, your, your, your children are your heirs. We're told in the word of God that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. We are heirs. We are also told that we've been adopted into God's family and that in being adopted into God's family, we can call God Abba, Father, and that we are identified as the children of God. We are God's children. The heirs of the promise are those who are the inheritors of 
of the promises of God. Now, there are many promises that God has made. You know, God has made the promise of providing for us. God has made the promise of protecting us. God has made all kinds of promises to us. God has made the promise of answering our prayers. God has made the promise of conforming us to the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I think that what's being referred to here is promise in a general sense. It's not just a specific promise. It's, it's ultimately the promise of salvation. It's ultimately the promise of all that God is determined to do for his people that he has loved from before the foundation of the world. These are the heirs of the promise. It's that group of people in the Bible that are called the elect who are chosen in him before the foundation of the world. It's that people who are adopted into God's family, who are redeemed, who are accepted in the beloved, who are justified, and who are clothed with an alien righteousness that is given them through the work of Christ by faith. <clears throat> These are the heirs of the promise. There's another designation in this text that's given to those who will be preserved. In verse 18, we're told that they are those who have fled for refuge. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement. Now you go down through these verses and you could say, all right, whenever these texts talk about God keeping his people, we could say, well, who are the people that God is going to keep? And the answer in this text, and we could go through the Bible and we could find many other ways to describe this or to define this. But first of all, they're the heirs of the promise. And here, <clears throat> they are those who have fled for refuge. What that's ta what's that talking about? Well, the reality is that every believer has fled to Christ for refuge, right? Every single believer has fled as you know, Lot was told to flee from Sodom and Gomorrah. Every believer has fled from themselves and fled from this world and fled from the coming judgment and run to Christ because they have heard and believed and acted upon the gospel that has been preached to them. They've truly heard, they have truly believed, and they have truly responded to the gospel and fled to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I like that terminology and I like that language because the reality is there's much that we need to flee from, right? We need to flee from our sins. We need to flee from the coming judgment. We need to flee from a day in which we're going to stand before God and we're unprepared and unfit to do so, right? We need to flee from this world with all of its corruption. And the condemnation that it rests under, you know, the condemnation that rests upon this godless world system. We need to flee from that. But no one does until the Spirit of God brings the gospel of God to bear upon their heart. And they see themselves as sinners and they see themselves as guilty and they see themselves as lost. And they see themselves as desperately in danger of eternal ruin and destruction. And whenever God does that work, they flee. They flee 
from this world. They flee from their sins. And they flee from the coming judgment of God. And they flee to Christ. The only one that can rescue them. The only one that can save them. So if we were to ask the question, who are the people that finally in the end will have been proven to be preserved and kept by God? In the language of this text, it's those who are the heirs of God's promise, who have been loved by God, set apart by God, saved by God, given by God the promises of God, and who are the inheritors of those promises. Now remember, don't forget what we studied in the weeks prior to this, because what comes right before this is in verse 13, where God made a promise to Abraham. And then God gave an oath to Abraham. And Abraham had to patiently wait. But then he obtained the promise that God made to him. And we are heirs of the promise, right? The believer is, all, every believer, Jew and Gentile alike, we are the inheritors of the promise of salvation. We are the inheritors of the promise of eternal life. We are the inheritors of the promise of spending eternity with God, in the very presence of God, and being made like Christ. We are the inheritors of that promise. And the evidence that we are the inheritors of that promise is that the gospel has come to us, we have heard it, we have believed it, and we have fled to Christ for refuge. These are the ones who will be preserved. Now, another question we could ask is how are these people to be preserved? Are they preserved by their own strength? Are they preserved by their own ability? Are they preserved by their own willpower? Are they preserved because they themselves have faith? Are they preserved because of their performance or their moral lives or their obedience to God? How are they preserved? Well, we know the answer to that because we understand the gospel. Men are not preserved because of themselves. They're preserved by God himself. They are preserved. And, 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 and the answer, I think, in the text is they are preserved because God has chosen to preserve them. I love the language of this text on a number of levels. But one of my favorite you know, one of my favorite lines in these, in these verses is in verse 17 where it talks about the unchangeable character of God's purpose. That what God has determined to do, God has not, God's not going to change his mind. And what it's in reference to is what God has determined to do for his people. What God is determined to do in saving and rescuing his people for the glory of his own name. That purpose of God is unchangeable. That, that purpose of God is unalterable. And the reason that the believer will be kept is not because they're going to be able to, you know, do it on their own or because they're going to be good enough or because they're going to keep the rules or because they're going to hold it. The reason that they will be kept is because before they were ever even given existence, God knew them. And God determined that he would do for them what they could never do for themselves. He had a plan for their life. And that plan is an unchangeable purpose and plan. And because he knows that he has 
the ability to do it, right? He has sovereign power. You know, I talk about this all the time. I might determine that I'm going to do something and then not have the ability to do it. But that could never be true of God. There's nothing that God could ever determine to do and then in the end prove that he didn't have the ability to do what he wanted to do. That's not God. That's me and you, but that's not God. Whatever God before the foundation of the world determined to do in creation will be done because God has unlimited ability. He has sovereign power. He has unrivaled authority. No one can stand against God. No one can thwart God. There's no other being that's a rival in the universe that could stand up against God and say, I know you would like to do this, but I'm here to stop you. No, there's no other being that could do that. And and, and the reality is that our preservation rests in God. It rests in the fact that God, before the foundation of the world, sovereignly and freely and graciously determined to do something for us, and He has the power to do it. He has the ability to do it. And that's why you have promises in the Bible like the promises of Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, where we can be confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. So our preservation rests in God. The the preservation of the saints is rooted in the will of God, the plan of God, the purpose of God. And it's rooted in the ability of God to carry out everything that he planned to do before he ever put the first star in the, in the night sky. So our preservation. Now number two, our assurance. Notice there's a term here in the English Standard Version and I think it's synonymous with assurance. It's strong encouragement in verse 18. He, in verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement. Strong encouragement. You know the believer can have assurance. The believer can have strong encouragement. Now let me tell you something about assurance. As long as you're looking into your own heart, you'll never have it. If you're honest. As long as you're looking at your performance, you'll never have it. But whenever you begin to look away from you and you begin to look to Christ and begin to believe the promises of the Word of God, you can have strong encouragement. You can have assurance. You can have assurance. You've heard me say this many times. A lot of times people that don't believe that you can have assurance are offended by people who have it. And they're offended by people who speak as if they have it because they don't believe it can be had. But the difference in these two people is the people who never have assurance, It's the reason they don't have assurance is because they're always looking at themselves. They're always looking into their own, own life. They're always wondering, did I pray the right prayer? Did I say the right thing? Did I, have I done good enough? Have I obeyed well enough? Have I, you know, and, and their focus is always on shifting sand so they never have assurance. 
And what drives them crazy about people that do have assurance is because they possess something that they themselves do not have. But what they don't understand is that the reason that they possess it is because they have lost any confidence or hope in themselves. And they're standing on the solid ground of gospel peace. And the solid ground of gospel peace is to look away from yourself and to look to the accomplishments of our Lord Jesus Christ and to find peace in that. How in the world can someone have strong encouragement? How can someone have great assurance? Well, I think this text gives us some markers. First of all, they understand that assurance is rooted, again, as I said a moment ago, in the nature of God's purpose. It says again, verse 17, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose. God's purpose doesn't change. That God determined to save a people from His from the mass of humanity for His own glory and in His grace, that God determined to do that, that is an unchangeable reality. That is an unchangeable plan of God. You know, you've heard me say, God never has to recalculate. God never has to come up with a plan B. God never has to refigure. Whatever God determined to do. And by the way, God never planned to do something and then found out He he didn't know something and he had to, you know, kind of come up with another idea. Never God. Never. There's nothing that God has ever thought or planned or willed that was wrong. So one of the reasons that the believer can have assurance if they know that they're one of the heirs of promise and they have fled to Christ for refuge one of the reasons that they can have assurance is by looking up to Christ and knowing that what God determined to do through Him and by Him for His people from before the foundation of the world, that is an unchangeable reality. That purpose will never change. God will never change His plan. He's never changed His plan. And, you know... We, I couldn't help but think as people were talking before service began how heartbreaking it is that some people know what it is to have a mate that they had vowed and loved for many decades maybe to walk in and say, well, I don't love you anymore. God will never do such things. God never does that. God can't do that. God's character and, and the character of His purpose is unchangeable. God will never do that. Another thing, we're told in this, bio, in this text that one of the grounds of our assurance is in two unchangeable things. Look at verse uh, 17 again. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. Now, have you ever been reading down through these verses and go, what are the two unchangeable things? Well, I think the answer is obvious when you read it all together and you read it in its context. 
The two unchangeable things are the promise of God and the oath of God. God made a promise and then God swore an oath that he would keep the promise. Those are the two unchangeable things. And when you go back in particular and you think about what the writer has said prior to these verses, you can see that. Look at verse 13. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. You notice there are two things. There's a promise that God makes. And then there's the oath of God committing himself to keep the promise. Those are the two unchangeable things upon which the grounds of our assurance rest. Now what is God's promise? God's promise is the declaration of his will. This is what God, this is when God to his people says, this is what I am going to do for you, right? In the person of his son. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to save you. I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to justify you. I'm going to give you my righteousness. I'm going to adopt you. I'm going to make you one of my children. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to protect you and watch over you and provide for you. And I'm going to bring you eventually to glory, to Christ-likeness. That's the promise. That's what God has declared He's going to do for all of his saints. The promise. But God does more than that. He makes an oath. Now, you know, this is all wrapped up in the text. We're told back again in verse 13 and 14 that God made the promise to Abraham and, you know, there was no one else for greater than God that God could swear an oath by so he had to swear on his own character so God swore to Abraham surely I will bless you and multiply you now this is I think in reference to God's promise to Abraham God made many promises to Abraham they generally were the same but God made many promises to Abraham but I think that this is in reference to God's promise to Abraham after he was willing to offer Isaac in Genesis chapter 22 so God made a promise to Abraham and then God swore on his own name on his own character I will do this for you and then Abraham were told patiently waited and he obtained the promise now we're told in the text in verse 17 why God did this. To show to the heirs of the promise convincingly. To convince the heirs of the promise of the unchangeable character of God's purpose. God made the promise and then God swore an oath. And these are the two unchangeable things. Our text this morning in verse 16 began with just a reference to how oaths are used. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, we're told, an oath is final for confirmation. Now we understand that. People have disputes and disagreements and then one of them to try to prove the truthfulness of their statement takes an oath, right? 
Whenever someone goes to court here, what do they do? They have to stand up in front of everybody. They put their hand, they used to, I don't know what, they may put it on a, you know, they may put it on a rose now, I don't know. But they used to put their hand on a Bible and they would swear an oath, I'm going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And they were saying that the statements that I'm about to make, you can take them to the bank. I'm swearing an oath that they are truthful. This is essentially what the writer is saying and telling us that God has done. God has made promise to His people and God has swore an oath to His people that He will keep His promise. God's put His name on the line. God's put His character on the line. And He's done this to convince us of the unchangeable character of His purpose and to comfort and encourage us. So whenever you're wrestling with assurance, look up to heaven and say, God has promised and God has sworn that He will bring His people to glory. God has promised and God has sworn on His own name because there's no one greater that God could possibly swear by Our assurance is rooted in the character of God. A character that we're told is revealed in the fact, in the text, that it is impossible for God to lie. It's not possible for God to lie. There's no way that God can lie. It's not not just saying He doesn't lie, it's saying He can't lie. God would never say something and it not be true. God would never swear an oath that He's going to keep His promise to His people and it not be true. What He's saying is the grounds for our assurance is rooted in the fact that God has spoken and God has committed Himself with an oath and God can't lie. And this is the grounds upon which we can have peace. And it's this ground, this, this assurance that should cause us to hold fast, to not faint, to not collapse. Verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us, the hope of the gospel. So we're preserved, and we're preserved by God. Those who are the heirs of the promise, who have fled to Christ for refuge, by the unchangeable purpose of God and by the sovereign power and unlimited ability of God we're preserved and we can have assurance we can be sure of this we can be you know we can we can have assurance that God's purpose is not going to change that God's plan for his people is not going to change and if we're one of those people we're in the plan and we can be certain That God, who cannot lie, has promised us and sworn an oath to convince us that our hope is secure. 
And that should cause us to hold fast. Now number three, our hope. Now here's some things that this text tells us about our hope. First of all, in verse 18, it tells us it's set before us. It's out in front of us, right? So, you know, again, we talked a little bit about this last Sunday night. Hope is future. Hope is something that God has promised and yet we are not yet fully in possession of it. It's out in front of us. It's on the horizon. We have not yet attained it, but God has promised it. And this is the great motivating and strengthening factor in the lives of the saints. May God help us again. May God in His grace, by His Spirit, help us again to start looking. You know, someone used to say, well, we need to be careful that we don't become so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly good. The problem is we're so earthly minded that we're no heavenly good. I understand we're not standing up in line wanting to leave life today. But what in the world ever happened to saints looking forward to what God had promised them and that hope being a source of strength and motivation for how they live life and what their goals and aim in life was. The hope is set before us. If you want to see a good illustration of that, read Pilgrim's Progress. He's always going somewhere. He's always, and, and he's going to the celestial city. He's going. He, he realizes that where he's at is not home. He's not safe yet. But he has a hope. And that hope motivates him. It motivates him to suffer and it motivates him to strive, correct? We're told in this text that the hope that is ours is sure and steadfast. We have this in verse 19 as a sure and steadfast anchor. Our hope is sure and steadfast, which means it's not a delusion. It's not something that's going to be disappointed. It's not something that God sets out in front of us and in the end it proves to be false. And in, in the end, it proves to have been a delusion. It's not something that people who are God's people are going to look forward to and reach for and strive for and walk toward and in the end find it to be nothing but a mist. It's real. It's a sure and steadfast hope that lies out in front of the saints. We're told that this hope is the soul's anchor. The soul's anchor. It's, it's an anchor. Now, you know, I'm not a seaman or anything like that, but it is a wonderful figure that God has put before us in His Word. This hope, we're told, is the soul's anchor. An anchor is used for what? Securing a ship. In particular, in the midst of a storm. In the olden days, when the Word of God was written, the ships were sailing vessels. And when a storm would come up, the ship, the, the ship would be at the mercy of the sea and the wind because the wind would take the, 
ship and just blow it adrift and blow it off course so they would drop anchor and the anchor would go under the water and grab a hold of the solid ground and keep the ship from drifting. That's what our hope does. Our hope is hidden to the eyes of the world. They can't understand it. They can't fathom it. But I'll tell you, it's our hope that anchors us and keeps us from drifting, in particular in the storms of life. When Satan comes and whispers in your ear, God doesn't love you or your life wouldn't be like this. And when the world says, what are you thinking, believing in Christ and following Christ? And look at, the, look at, the, look at your life. Chuck it all. The anchor is what keeps us from drifting. The anchor holds solid ground. You say, well, how do we define this hope? Well, ultimately, this hope is all wrapped up in a person. In 1 Timothy 1 verse 1, we're told that Jesus Christ is our hope. And the text here tells us that as well. Look at verse 19. We have this as a sure and this hope in verse 18 that is set before us that we're to hold fast to. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. It's a reference to the holy of holies. In particular, it's a reference to the temple in heaven of which the temple on earth was merely a picture and a shadow of, a representation of. And remember that in the holy of holies behind the curtain, behind the veil, was the Shekinah glory of God and the Ark of the Covenant where God would come and meet with His people. Now, who has went in as our high priest, who has went in behind the curtain into the inner presence and sanctum of God Jesus has it is Jesus that has entered into the place the holy place the holy of holies in heaven behind the curtain now you say well that's just a guess no all you got to do is read one more verse and you know that I'm not guessing because it says we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus has entered into the holy place. He has entered there as our forerunner and he's entered there on our behalf. And you know what a forerunner is? He's one that goes before us and makes a way for us, right? He goes ahead of us and makes a way for us. He is the pathfinder. But not only in our case is he the pathfinder, he's the path. He's the door. He's our high priest. Who bore our sins in his body, died in our place, paid our debt, rose again, and went into the very presence of God. There we're told in Hebrews 7 to appear on our behalf 
as our great intercessor. That is the ground, that is our hope. That is the essence of our hope. The hope of what I am going to be, the hope of what I'm going to possess, the hope that I will one day be delivered from this sinful flesh, the hope that I will one day be delivered from this corrupt and fallen world, the hope that I will one day be able to please God and love God and worship God and serve God the way that I was created to, but the way that I lost because of the fall. That hope is rooted in the fact that Christ, our hope, has paid our debt, rose from the dead, and he is seated there in heaven, our forerunner, on our behalf. And that is the ground of the believer's hope, that is the ground of the believer's assurance, and that is the ground of the believer's preservation, Jesus. You never, listen, I was, I was just sitting out front this morning thinking about this. You, you cannot know. You cannot know how severe the trial of your faith can be until you've had it, until you experience it. I grieve as I've gotten older I grieve as I've gotten older at how incapable I was of in to a large degree of being able to in any sense even be able to identify with some of the sufferings and trials that many of the people of God have went through. And the reason for that is I just hadn't experienced some things. You cannot know how severe your faith can be tried until it's really tried. But also, you cannot know how sweet and how strong the consolation of Jesus is until you've been tried. You know, I, the thoughts that Satan can whisper in your mind in the dark of the night, the unanswered questions when you've prayed and prayed and prayed, and heaven is silent. And you know the promises of God. And you believe the promises of God. But there's just like so much wind trying to blow you off course and cause you to drift. You better have an anchor. You better have an anchor. I'm not nearly, you know, and I'm not, 
this text this week has been sweet to me. It's comforted me. It's strengthened me. It's been sweet to my soul as I've thought about it this week. It was sweet this morning when I come over here and I sit down to pray and think. This is a sweet text. It is a strong tower. But I'm going to tell you, I guess as a young minister, I was a lot, I had a lot more confidence in me than I do now. You know how much confidence I have in me now? None. I don't have any confidence in me. Because there was a time I didn't realize how how your faith could just be put to such severe testings. And when that happens, if you're one of God's people, He holds you up and He sustains you, but, but you learn so much about yourself, about how weak and how frail and how <coughs> sinful you are. And as you learn that, you're thankful that there's an anchor that you can cling to that will keep you from drifting. Even at that, your sails get torn. Bless the Lord who keeps His people. Bless the Lord who's promised to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And bless the Lord that we can have assurance and a sure and steadfast hope and a sure anchor. Well, let's pray. Now let's take communion.